Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are discussing seances and spiritualism and how it echoes in the current debates over the paranormal, including in the Ozarks. We will get back to that in a minute, but first we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Substack, or about any other podcast platform. So what about the 19th century spiritualism movement sounds familiar today? And what is a seance, really? Well, for one, seances are often not what we think of from movies and other aspects of pop culture. But there are a lot of questions that the spiritualists of the 19th century confronted that are still being discussed in today's paranormal field. And of course, that includes the paranormal field right here in the Ozarks. We will return to what may or may not be familiar about the seance and spiritualism. But first, we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe to Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Substack, and as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first drawing copy of the book Dark Ozarks, The Spook Light. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarts t-shirts for sale at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and at the website alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's Best Brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. I'm really wondering at this point uh, that we just don't make it a requirement. If you are a sponsor for Dark Ozarks, you do have to have a building that is haunted. I'm good with it. I am too. <laughs> There's a challenge there. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have we have thrown out the challenge. Now we will do the investigations as well. So uh, if you're if you don't know and you'd like us to look into that, we can do that for you. But I don't know. That might 
it constituted a conflict of interest, but we, I, I still have incredible memories of the, uh, the initial uh, survey investigation that we did in ALBA, and the results of that were pretty impressive. Yes, they were, and more coming on that, and we'll be back, so. Absolutely. I want the grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm hoping they still have it on the menu, but. They might just make it. You're just hungry, I think. I am hungry, but <laughs> then again, I'm always hungry, so that, that comes with the territory. In terms of seances, as we were doing research for tonight's episode, I kept coming back to the fact that my um, my my knowledge of seances prior to now uh, was was largely formed by two points of interest in pop culture. One of them being a section of Walt Disney's The Haunted Mansion, um, the attraction, not the movie. Uh, and that is the the point where you go through the uh, the room with uh, with Madame Leota, uh, oh. her head inside a crystal ball, and the 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 the, the rhyme that she is is uh, is saying, uh, really, as as with so many of the things about the haunted mansion, are are heavily informed by paranormal understanding from the nineteenth century, or what we would think of as vintage paranormal. And uh, there, there's mention of uh, ringing of bells and tapping sounds, the, or the rappings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in, the, in the room itself, several objects, including a tambourine, are flying around the room. Mm -hmm. and, and I grew up um, going on this ride. And so without really thinking about it, that, uh, that section, heavily informed uh, my understanding. And mm -hmm. the, the other is from a Eurythmics music video from the 1980s. <laughs> Hadn't thought about that in years. <laughs> I really like that music video. Um, <laughs> and, and it's very, again, like that, that music video is very, uh, <clears throat> uh, very multidimensional. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and very interesting, and and although of course the haunted mansion is definitely fits in the category of twentieth century pop culture, and it is all about fun. There there there's a surprising amount of attention to detail and respect that I think is really imbued in that, as well as the Eurythmics music video. True. I, I, I have to agree, um, and I think that I think that's a fair starting place for most people uh, as to our you know our idea of what is spiritualism, what what were the seances that were involved, and then the sort of the effect of the debunkers for so long so that most people think, oh, it was all fake or it was hoaxed, et cetera, et cetera. And it is much more complex than that. It is. And uh, the, the influence of uh, early to mid 19th century American culture on French culture and vice versa, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. I think is in and of itself fascinating. We don't necessarily think of a lot of cross-cultural ideas from from that time period necessarily. I don't think, not because we, we have an opposition to it, but just because that's not part of our consciousness in, in terms of, uh, of, of American culture being influenced by the, the French Second Empire culture and French Second Empire culture being in, influenced by American culture and really, comparatively speaking, very young American culture. This is uh, uh, a developing nation uh, prior to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, you know, really, you, you you can't really have this discussion without starting with the Fox sisters. Um, True. And I think that um, e even in paranormal circles, the idea of the spiritualism movement coming from the experiences of the Fox sisters is not well understood. Um, you, you usually get this uh, sense that oh they they just kind of appeared and were stage mediums and then maybe they it was a hoax maybe it wasn't but how things started was a lot different and to be honest um, would uh, be very familiar in a lot of ways to virtually any paranormal investigator in the country today um, uh, I, I agree. They they had a haunted house. They 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 had a haunted house. They moved in a haunted house, and uh, uh, and it wasn't and and it's usually, you know, the the sisters, the daughters are talked about so much, but the mother actually was very central to the early story. Um, all three of them at night they would hear sounds they would hear thumps or rapping um in the bedrooms and um the mother actually is the one who really started trying to figure it out um and it seemed to be intentional and she started asking questions out loud basically conducting an evp session but with raps yes uh, which is yeah. not similar to what we do on a regular basis. Exactly. And including uh, a lot of um, the, the, the early accounts um, that um, witness accounts uh, are fairly detailed and really go into uh, a lot of the, you know, the rationale, the, the thinking process. And a lot of it was trying to figure out um what was going on if this was someone and a lot of detailed questions virtually as you said what happens now on investigations um but it was not in the early days later in the spiritual movement with seances often it focused on being a conduit for guests to communicate with certain people um and in the early days that was not part of it it was not assumed that whatever was going on or if it was a spirit was connected to the fox family whatsoever 
Right. It, it was it was originally understood uh, to be associated with the location. Yes. <clears throat> and then, of course, when they finally got tired of all this, they moved and it moved with them. It was a bogger. It was a bogger. <laughs> uh, we solved the spiritualism question. No, we did not. It, it is complicated. Jumping forward with the Fox sisters, my understanding is at one point, a lot later on, one of the sisters recanted and yes. and and began the process that it was a hoax, and then later recanted that she had recanted. Is that correct? That's that's correct. And so and, and I think that's the part that gets um, talked about these days. But there were a lot of people who witnessed this. I mean, a lot of people would come in. And one reason they moved from that house is because people would show up at the house to watch what was going on. Yes. And so you had a lot of witnesses and a number of them who left written accounts fairly detailed of what happened. Um, that um, were, were really convinced that it was not a hoax by the girls. Um, and then there's been some supposition that I've, I've read that perhaps the, the recanting was just a way of trying to get away from sort of you know that that uh, spotlight that they've been under for so long that she was just tired of it so always oh, a hoax just leave me alone and yeah. maybe not realizing the snowball effect that that would have <laughs> the, the, the the social pressure I, I think is something that is important to take into account what began uh, and of course, there's there's differing opinions on what was happening at the at the house at the Fox House, and of course, this is in um, Upper New York State, mm -hmm. the Finger Lakes region. And what is is easy to overlook today is the uh, immense social pressure that was then placed on this family as this essentially began a new movement mm -hmm. that, that seemed to be probably not for the better for the Fox family, but for the, for the, the, the movement itself was at the right place at the right time to capture the imagination and, and propel it into something that I'm sure on that first night that the family was trying to decipher what was going on in their home that they could not have anticipated. No, I don't think so. And and sort of an irony is that part of the reason that from the modern perspective, the Fought Sisters and, and seances of that time period and everything are kind of rebuked is because they are viewed as not empirically based and not a, of an objective scientific bent. Whereas the reason that people actually became fascinated with them um, and they proliferated at the time was they were actually, it was actually seen as a method that was empirical, that was more scientific, that, that stepped away from the metaphysical. And so 
we've we've done a 180 flip on that yeah. viewing we it. Have. And I think it is also important to understand the mm, the technological milieu in which this was happening was that uh, rural new America was experiencing a technological and industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. And that was bringing a, a heretofore unheard of uh, experiences and phenomena mm -hmm. into everyday lives. And so as, as one of the uh, reference materials that we, we were reviewing today mentioned the idea in the 19th century that if messages could be sent uh, hundreds, if not thousands of miles by radio, by radio wave, then which you know previously would have been absolutely impossible. You just simply could not conceptualize trans uh, uh, transferring information like that. Then right. it wasn't that big of a leap to say, well, if you could, for example, send a radio message across the Atlantic, why couldn't you send a radio message into the ether to the dead? Exactly, um, which gets into sort of the later iteration of serious seances and in, invisible causations and so forth uh, in Europe. Uh, but, you know, it is a, it's a logical discussion at least in, um, and now looking back, I think, you know, people say, if you want to be, if you are really honest, you have to say, how, how much further afield is that from radio or the idea of um, uh, wireless electricity that Tesla worked on in the 1890s, 1880s and 1890s. Um, these were all concepts that, um, were taken very seriously and to be honest um we would not be doing what we're doing right now without those <laughs> ideas um, no no so, we, we so is not. it so crazy so is it so crazy that they that they you know debated these issues and and uh, experimented with it and i don't think so I, I think it's in a lot of ways a lot of this information is grounded in 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 objective rationale and it is grounded in uh the the spirit of the times which was very robust in its in its concepts of burgeoning technology and rapid change and the idea that something that was impossible not long ago suddenly could become possible and along with that came a, a concept that we in, in in the modern era looking back have a hard time because we we see the spiritualism movement shrouded in nostalgia and a, a vintage perspective, but I feel like there was a lot of excitement surrounding the spiritualism movement and the idea that these these uh, previously inexplicable answers or inexplicable questions: what happens in the afterlife? Um, how, what's going on? Is there an afterlife? Is there not an afterlife? Uh, if there is, what is, what is it like? Uh, all of these things that 
for tying back to the antiquities uh, was was a, a question. There was a, a, a period of time in which there was a lot of hope that objective answers could be found. Exactly, exactly. And so I, I don't think it's really fair to kind of poo-poo those who, who searched for those answers now, um, which it, it's easy to do for, you know, from the perspective of, oh, we know better or we know this or that, which we may not. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's true. And it, it's, it, again, I think that we are, we are um, a bit blinded by that um, nostalgia element. We are also blinded by a, a lot of heavy industrialized indoctrination of the 20th century. Yes. And that has, has both formed our perception of the world, particularly since 1893. Most people don't realize that. Uh, but with the Columbia Exposition and the idea that um, the the great thinkers and and more specifically the great um, public public relations aspects of American corporation began to decide how the the, the West was going to see the world in mm -hmm. in a quantifiable and structured and organized way, beginning. It appears with the Columbia Exposition in Chicago in 1893, and then continuing with the bringing it to the Ozarks, uh, the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, and then looking at how that push toward what we think of as 20th century modernism or industrialized modernism then heavily impacted not only culture. But it also began to perhaps subconsciously, uh, perhaps not subconsciously, heavily impact the the, the more staid voices of uh, authorized or acceptable Christianity in North mm -hmm. America, which then began to have a uh, very negative impact upon aspects of spiritualism. Yes, and, and, and in Europe as well, and, and, and the uh, and sort of the irony is that um, a lot of that negative impact came specifically from those religious uh, sectors accepting that what spiritualism was doing was in fact valid and that it was authentic communication with the other side. Um, and so um, um, it wasn't that they thought they were a hoax, they thought they were, that they had figured it out, but it was bad, but the opinion was that's bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then over time, um, the science community, which started out as champion, champions of spiritualism, um, started becoming uncomfortable, um, and, and, and turned on the movement as well. It did. Um, it did, which to me is, is very interesting to, to look at that 
um, about face essentially that 180 because that was not uh, in many cases that was not the situation at the onset. No, and I, I think if you, you you just have to look at uh, David uh, Home in England, uh, a preeminent medium for a number of years, who was also uh, a scientist and um, uh, a professor and, and uh, sat in a lot of scientific chairs. Um, um, and ironically, he is, he is one of the very um, notorious or famous uh, mediums that they never could um, say was a hoax. In fact, even through all the controversy, many scientists continued to um, support him based on their observations of his work that um, they believe that, you know, one, he was not a hoax and two, it was authentic and, and real. Um, and ultimately, um, his interest kind of changed as with the spiritualism movement. And he got into uh, being more concerned with the, the idea, the, the social aspects of spiritualism. And just to set the stage with, <clears throat> with Daniel Douglas Holm, uh, there's a quote uh, from an article uh, published with the University of Edinburgh written by Peter Lamont that, uh, that states, quote, in 1860, a journalist reported that he had attended a seance in a private drawing room in London conducted by the celebrated medium Daniel Douglas Holm. During this seance, if we are to believe the journalist, the medium had risen in the air and for several minutes had floated horizontally around the room. The journalist ruled out trickery or his own imagination as explanations for this extraordinary event. And his honesty was vouched for by the journal's editor, William Makepeace Thackeray. Yes. Uh, and, and, and there were other uh, very uh, credible um, men who uh, supported home uh, besides Thackeray. And, um, even even with these, when you think about it, pretty extraordinary claims, you know, levitation, et cetera, um, there never was any clear um, debunking or anything else. And, and, and for the most part, he retained his credibility. And, and his, his patrons, um... And, and his, his followers, if you, although follower may not be the correct word uh, yeah. in this particular case, uh, included Napoleon III, uh, Tsar mm -hmm. Alexander II, uh, and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Yes. Um, certainly people that you wouldn't necessarily um, consider frivolous. And it, it, landing on this for a moment, <clears throat> we have all grown up in in a world that has been uh, shaped by technology. Mm -hmm. 
the the eras that we're talking about here, the 1830s to 1860s, was a time which for uh, Europe and North America was a time of extraordinary change that I think is difficult for us to imagine how decontextualizing or deconstructing that was for many of the individuals who were living through it at the time. Yes. And then, that, and then in America, when you get to the 1860s of the Civil War, even more so. And, and I think that it is easy for us, perhaps here on the, at then, at that time frontier to, um, to overlook some of that um, decon decontextualization or destabilization that was brought on by the onset of technology. Because things moved a little less rapidly mm -hmm. uh, out here than say they did in New York or London. And at the same time, we, we think of those spaces as being very cosmopolitan, but we have to understand that that, that generation who is experiencing this rapid industrialization of technology was the first generation of humanity to suddenly be so massively impacted by change. Yes, or at least the first time in a very long time. Yeah, it, and looking at that, that mm, just at the time, all encompassing industrialization, uh, mm -hmm. communication, transit, um, this social reconfiguration, et cetera. What to me is really fascinating is that many of the descriptions associated with home are not dissimilar to say West African animism or um, crazy stuff in backwoods churches in the Ozarks and Appalachia uh, or uh, Scandinavian shamanism. Very true. I mean, there are elements there that that uh, have very close parallels. I mean, as far as attributes, so it, it's to me, it's interesting because it, I what I keep seeing in the 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 questions, uh, sometimes the answers and the the conflict of spiritualism is this consistent. Uh, push-pull or yin and yang anxiety of where do humans exist within this larger industrial onslaught. True. And then almost as a microcosm um, of that issue is how, how do different parts of society fit into that? And I think and I think a, a good example of that as, as seances progressed and it moved on from just receiving information from whatever is there, not assuming that you are channeling or being a conduit. I think that, of course, what gave, um, say, the illusionist um, fodder for uh, attacking mediums was the move towards um, 
this idea of invisible causation that um, invisible forces affect, and in it, it, it was part of the 19th century and so many things, uh, social research, etc. cetera. Uh, but in spiritualism, it, uh, in the seances, it came out that suddenly the medium is a conduit um, and you get things like automatic writing and things like that. Um, and it, it uh, brought out a lot of the uh, inequities and, and just and some of the issues that society at the time didn't want to face because a lot of the mediums were women, yes. uh, particularly <laughs> young women, and who in polite society should not be in this room with all these people and maybe holding hands with men um, and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Um, which now we laugh at, but um, they weren't laughing at the time. They weren't laughing at the time, and and as we were, you know, researching, preparing this week, one thing that that struck me is that um, whatever the debates in the current paranormal field are, um, we if if we had not kind of gone through these issues in the 19th century, we would not be um, where we are, where we have, we have paranormal teams, we, we you know, people are, are basically doing this in public, et cetera, because the social constraints have already been dealt with. And that to me is fascinating. I think it is realistic to conjecture that we owe much more to the spiritualist movement than we could possibly imagine in those regards, mm -hmm. in terms of, of breaking down some of those, uh, at the time, largely ironclad social order expectations, and probably for the better, it's very interesting to, to look, again, at some of the restrictions that were, were expected not to be crossed in proper society and mm -hmm. particularly between men and women and it is additionally interesting uh if you were to I, I suspect take a if we could if we could time travel and we were to pluck a um an upper class um individual from say london or paris or new york from the 1830s or 40s uh and drop them in today's society, they would probably be uh, horrified by yeah. things that we simply don't even notice. I, I think that's that's very valid. I, and then you throw in the fact that um, spiritualism and particularly seances was one of the first means of um, sort of mixing the classes. Um, that often mediums were from lower income or middle class um, background and the patrons often were high society. Um, this was something that just simply did not happen. This was the time when, you know, in, in a uh, aristocratic house, you had servants stairs, so the servants weren't seen. And so, you, you know, certainly not seen in the parlor. Um, 
or conducting the entertainment for the evening. Um, and um, it's easy to laugh at these notions, but it, it, it was a sort of a painful prog process for society to go through, um, both in North America and in Europe. Um, and, you know, even to the point that um, being a spiritualist or medium uh, became a means of and grounds um, for committing women to asylums. Yes, which I think is a, a fascinating discussion. I'm excited to dig into that. Something that I, I was thinking as we were as we were just discussing was some of the, those cross ties or points of comparison uh, between what were what was going on in the 1830s to the 1860s in Paris and England to some of the things that were going on in the Ozarks. And there is a, again, a constant pro and con uh, on, on these sides. We have the, on, on the positive side and the, these uh, heavily, what we would think of as rigidly structured uh, urban societies. Mm -hmm. Obviously a lot of, uh, um, for then uh, positive social infrastructure uh, access to uh, amenities, et cetera, that were not in, for example, Missouri in the 1830s. Um, at the same time, what you traded for that, and I think that it was it was an understood social contract that what you got, um, you got in many cases, um, a ready supply of, of employment, you had, uh, individuals providing food on the corners at cost at, you know for a price but the fact that you know obviously the uh, uh, the urban uh, substructure of Paris was not all growing their own food in the backyard uh, they were buying it uh, etc and that while there may not have been an enormous amount of social mobility there was a lot of, um, for at that time, safety infrastructure that you were trading. At the same time, right. something that I think is fair to say is part of the 19th century's um, attraction to the uh, expansion of the United States was that you could leave the social rigidity behind but mm -hmm. what you were trading for it was a lack of infrastructure, a lack of a safety net, and you were going to try to make it is in essence on your own. And in many cases, particularly here in Missouri, during that time frame, there there was no <laughs> there was no nine one one to call. Um, no, and there was uh, there was no uh, store to go to. You were coming into this space that was unsettled that there at the time there were no there it wasn't is it a difficult road in some cases there were no roads and creating uh settlement and structure at the same time of course this is jumping a bit forward in the 1880s which is you know later but you look at the um outpost of gentility 
in the Ozarks in the 1880s, which is Eureka Springs. And even today, say, for example, go to the, the Crescent Hotel, which was built in 1886. Um, what, you know, on, the, on one side of the hotel is what originally was the servants' quarters where yeah. they would stay um, mm -hmm. after having been brought by their aristocratic employers. Very true, very true. And you and you you saw that in a lot of places in the Ozarks and not just um, huge resort hotels like like the Crescent. Um, uh, a lot of places were, were that way. That's how th how things functioned um, once you had more of a landed class. Um, and yeah, there were a lot of growing pains. And I think, you know, when, from the uh, social, um, social standpoint, um, I think it's interesting. I, th I think it's very illustrative of that, that the spiritualism movement in the beginning was very interested in physical phenomena, um, you know, tapping of the, on the table and, and, and things like that, um, things moving, what we would consider poltergeist activity, um, which ironically is the focus of a lot of focus of paranormal investigations um, is looking into that physical uh, phenomena. And, but fairly early in the movement, many kind of either got bored of that or moved on and it became, it was no longer about that. It was about the unseen, you know, what causes things, um, which ironically, you know, we, we talk about in, in the paranormal field now, you know, the idea that, okay, we, for the most part, people accept that strange phenomena can occur, um, the physical phenomena. You may not agree that it's paranormal or supernatural. Um, it's the, it's the causation that, that, we kind of say we don't really know or uh, skeptics will say there has to be another causation. Well, that's what the, the, the later spiritualist movement tried to uh, explore. Um, some of it through seances, some of it through research and, you know, uh, et cetera. But um, it's really the same discussions. It, it it is, and fascinatingly to me, it's discussions revolving around phenomena that, from a from a documentation standpoint, haven't really changed in forever. Uh, but we we see similar discussions, not spiritualist discussions, but similar notations about phenomena from the Elizabethan era. Um, from, in some cases, uh, from antiquity with, uh, with record of, uh, you know, Greco-Roman records, it is strongly suggestive that these types of phenomena have been going on forever. And mm -hmm. we're, we're still dealing with the questions of what it is. Um, this is, and this is, this is, for me, this is 
well, this is a normal conceptual leap for me. Um, it's not normal, but something that is really <laughs> fascinating is <laughs> to me is so much of the uh, the questions revolving spiritualism do revolve around uh, what is classified or what is thought of as the Second French Empire, uh, mm -hmm. which is the 18 year uh, rule of Napoleon the Third. It's mm -hmm. uh, 1852 to 1870, and there, there's a couple of interesting things. One is that Napoleon the Third was a patron of home. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that connection really, really fascinating. Two, um, many of the great um, aspects of 19th century American architecture are inspired or actually classified as Second Empire, uh, mm -hmm. stuff that I really, really love. And uh, just been studying it from, uh, in, in the Second Empire architecture, heavily influenced uh, Missouri architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we see it in a number of locations. Uh, the one a, a notable example of this is in a, a, what is essentially a Ozarks borderlands gateway city, very historic as well, which is St. Charles. Yes. And lots of, uh, of architecture in downtown St. Charles is Second Empire. Um, the, uh, the Oddfellows Hall is one of the most yeah. notable, not the only one, but certainly one of the most notable. And, and again, because I'm me, I can't help but draw the comparisons, uh, to Disney and, uh, because of course I can, but that, that architecture, uh, did impact, uh, Walt Disney immensely mm -hmm. and, the uh, replicas of Second Empire architecture figured predominantly in what is called Main Street USA. Very true, very true. And of course, Disney is another Missouri connection. <laughs> With Marceline. Uh, and <clears throat> that, uh, that said, the, the aspect of spiritualism in seances and essentially the, the uh, the the tapping or the rapping at the table uh, heavily influenced um, French culture and was a very unsettling force that I think functions as a way of seeing how the West in general began to respond both positively and negatively to the spiritualism movement and certainly the the again as you mentioned the the what was seen as a uh, perhaps unseemly destabilization of classes, uh, and, uh, and, and that being heavily influenced by the, um, the, the role of women mm -hmm. in, in this social structure really took place in, in France and, and, and as well as the, the impact or the response of, uh, the Catholic church. Yes. Um, and, and of course, that you know came down to sort of a idea of a crisis of faith, and uh, with society looking to science for answers, and um, the spiritualist movement seeming to bring that idea to Main Street um, instead of just the storied halls of universities, etc. 
that, uh, to be honest, that, you know, the, the church was very wary um, of this. Um, and so you ended up with a number of groups kind of, you know, kind of distrusting each other and attacking each other in various ways that uh, really just really, as you said, destabilized society in, in certain ways, but reformed it uh, in other ways. And it's very interesting. I mean, another figure that um, of, of the time and uh, that people be familiar with would, would be Victor Hugo. Yes. Who I, um, I, I found that very fascinating that um, as the craze started, you know, he's being isolated uh, on an island and uh, oh, I forget who it was that was there with he and his wife and experimented with the table and believed that they communicated with the, their dead child. Yes. And I, I found that uh, that report as a whole um, to just be extraordinary. And it's, uh, of course, much of this is from, a, from an article written by John, John Monroe, uh, making the seance serious. And um, I'm, I'm excited to be able to hopefully um, pronounce this right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's essentially the, the table tapping Yes. Uh, process the table tournant, and yeah. it is to me this this particular um, experience that Victor Hugo had and was documented uh, in terms of his his finding consolation uh with what he believed was his 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 dead family member yes was extremely um uh, extremely beautiful and from from what we can tell would had to have been a very personal and a very cathartic experience yes and i and in that's a really good point. I'm glad you made that. That I think that's one aspect that we tend to overlook today, looking back at these events, is that um, they served a very, a, a very valuable um, process for catharsis uh, for people. Where today people may go, you know. It, would go to counseling or to a therapist for the same purpose. Um, and I, and I, th I, I don't think we should look down, look askance at, at this because it really served the same purpose and the same process for processing emotions. I, I agree very much with that. And something that was really striking to me while and, and and perhaps even a bit heartbreaking in this. It, this is an incredibly complex subject. It and is that <clears throat> the the experience of the the tablettura that Victor Hugo ex, you know went through in regards to his the passing of his family member 
his his sister uh, who had drowned uh, in a boat. Sister attack. instead of a child. That's right. I'm sorry. No, good. And uh, that it was something that, and and I've had experiences similar to this. That not specifically speaking with the dead, but experiences that that could perhaps be described as as metaphysical or deeply cathartic um that that were terribly personal um terribly unique and were were experiences that while they would meant a great deal and were terribly portentous to me is something that if it was suddenly splattered all over the news media uh could become a point of mockery or could become a point of of uh, the mundane something that is very difficult we're we're dealing with something that from a from a we're we're potentially dealing with and i believe we are dealing with a, a unique intersection between uh the mundane and the mortal with mm-hmm. the um the heightened or other into the metaphysical and those don't necessarily translate well on a newspaper page no it, it it's the old age you have to be there to see it kind of thing um and and let's face it you still see that today with discussion of the paranormal or say ufos or other phenomena uh, bigfoot's been a recent topic on the on the uh, Dark Ozarks uh, page. Um, and and you see this dichotomy, this very real experience that people have that had um, meaning to them and others basically mocking it. Um, you know, that if it doesn't happen to me, it doesn't happen, basically. And... Um, it is the same process that the 19th century tried to sort out what is evidence of an invisible force? What is evidence of the afterlife? Um, what is certainty of what we're experiencing? Um, and it happened through the spiritualism movement to a large part for that century. Um, and so that alone, I think, is something to say. It's something that should be seriously considered and not mocked. No, no, it shouldn't. At the same time, uh, something that because of the 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 aspect that you you really have to be there uh, in person for the experience it does open the door for for individuals to fake things for profit. Yes, yes. Um, and, and that is something too, is that, you know, that is one thing over time, particularly um, in, in the, um, in the uh, social reform aspect of spiritualism, even, even, in, even though they were as focused on seances, uh, but they would try to come up with criteria of 
what what is a serious uh, seance and, and what are you know, sort of restraints on hoaxes and so forth. And, you know, one was that you wouldn't charge for it. Um, and um, although often um, it, it was a double-edged sword because it, it was it was a way of still trying to eliminate lower class women from the field because they often did it for money because they needed the income for sustenance. Uh, whereas if you had um, uh, a man or woman from higher class, they didn't have to charge, they didn't need the money. Um, and we still have, you have that debate going on today in the paranormal field. And I think it is informed from that prior debate, even though most people probably don't link them. Um, and uh, the idea that is if you don't charge, there's no incentive to, for fakery. Well, that's not necessarily true either, because a lot of, you know, if people, if they're going to fake it, often it is for notoriety anyway, um, or attention or whatever. Um, whether or not money is the biggest evil in the world, it's not the only one. Absolutely. And it's really uh, just a, a I guess that, that being said, you know, um, I, I, I've never charged for, for investigations. <laughs> well, there may be admission fees for public events, but that's something separate. But, um, yeah. but again, part of that is informed from that process of that debate of um, don't invite controversy. Right. <clears throat> right. And, and, and then the, the other aspect of uh, a great deal of this is we're, we're also seeing the spiritualist movement develop uh, at, a, at a time when there was a lot of bombastic con artists, not mm -hmm. just in the spiritualism movement, uh, but just in terms of, of entertainment that was happening. Entertainment, um, uh, uh, quackery, medicine, all kinds of things. It was. And, and I, I need to correct um, myself. Um, it was um, Hugo's daughter. Um, it was his daughter. Okay. It was Leopoldine. Um, but Hugo, what, what was throwing me off in, in terms of the notes uh, was that the, the seance, essentially, the, the table tourna, the, the table affair was uh, a family situation. Uh, and so Leopoldine's surviving brother was also involved in asking questions in the process. Right. I, I recall that. Now, it's sort of an interesting point um, that I thought of right then with the tables. Um, at that time, uh, it was a matter of, of raps coming through, you know, knocks, basically. Um, now, over time, as it became more of a theatrical event for at least some mediums, um, the wrapping tables turned into tipping table tables. <laughs> and, uh, you know, where basically the table would move. 
uh, or tip back and forth. And that lent itself to fakery and devices to cause it to, to tip and move. And ironically, um, table tipping is still something that is done today by psychics. Mm -hmm. it's, I think that the more you dig into the spiritualist movement, the more you begin to realize that there is an it never in, really went away. <laughs> it never really went away. And an inordinate amount of public consciousness has been informed by these aspects, perhaps because our questions um, throughout antiquity into the modern era were not satisfactorily answered. What actually happens um, in in the in the afterlife and the and the debates that take place the um, manner in which uh, organized uh, or structured uh, Christian religion also informs, uh, but also confronts uh, the question, something that, that seemed to take place during the Second Empire era in France, when, uh, the, when Catholicism was definitely entrenched within the uh, authoritarian and aristocratic structures was that these questions uh, of the afterlife, these questions of, of, uh, of you know, what happens to my family member, these were questions that should be directed toward the church, not toward a middle or lower class woman. Yeah. Um, and, and claiming to be uh, a seer or a medium. You know, Territorial disputes, basically, between religion and science and metaphysics. And, and literally a metaphysical territory. Yes. Yeah, figuratively <laughs> and literally, if you want to yes. look at it that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, well, we will just begin referring to this as the metaphysical wars. Uh, <laughs> and, that might be a big title coming out. <laughs> <laughs> and... You know that, that these are <clears throat> obviously these social questions and social issues were questions and issues that were being debated here in the Ozarks as well as most everywhere else where there was a newspaper. At True, and in in if towards the end of the spiritualism movement, um, one of the most prominent spiritualist mediums was patient what was the petitional patient's worth yes yes and and very much at the at the end of this but you know a, a woman who really fits so many of the the those hallmarks mm -hmm. in, in terms of uh a, a essentially a uh savant like response uh in terms of the mediumship uh, an individual who was knowing things that you could be, you could legitimately argue that she shouldn't know or shouldn't have access to. Yes, and and again, she was from Missouri, so there's mm -hmm. connection. Um, but I find, you know, I, I really do find it interesting that it, I was thinking about this earlier today. There's a lot of parallels with her and um, home. That's a good that, point. 
that there really was never a satisfactory explanation other than, yeah, it happened and, and she got this information that we can't explain. Um, that um, that um, did not come off as the as the butt of the uh, debunkers, you know. And so um, it's almost that they book in the movement. You know, he started and she ended it. And both in, in, a, in a real sense, um, no one could explain them away. No. And that's, that is also interesting. And something that seems to be notable about the debunkers and one of the, the, the mm, later and certainly the most well-known debunkers was Harry Houdini. Yes. Uh, who, who wanted to be remembered not as a magician and as an escape artist, but as the man who apparently single-handedly debunked all of the spiritualism movement is that the um the the personal momentum that was created by many of these debunkers harry houdini being a prime example was at an almost religious if not flat out religious zealot perspective uh, I think particularly with him, it was. I mean, it, it, mm -hmm. it, it did rise to that level. And it's interesting to try to do an analysis on that in the sense that the, the argument being that um, spiritualism should be debunked because it is an objective, but some of these individuals, and let's face it, they were predominantly men, were not exhibiting a high degree of objectivity in their attempt to stamp this movement out. True. Very, very true. It, it is also, there is a little bit of an irony, irony too, because of course, uh, Harry Houdini is not his birth name. And he took his stage name actually after an illusionist of the 1800s, the great Houdin, who, by the way, was a spiritualist. It is interesting. I, <laughs> I, I would like to know uh, what personal trauma some of these individuals experienced that led them on this uh, zealous, um, essentially witch hunt. Yeah. Uh, well, this. I mean, there is there is quite a bit of um, circumstantial evidence that the the scientific the 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 hard science circles sort of enlisted the illusionists as cohorts ironically previously they would they um disparaged illusionists um but then found them useful in um the, uh, casting aspersions on the spiritualist movement so you, you had you you continue to have all these moving uh, alliances that, you know, we 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 didn't get along, but now we can use you to debunk the spiritualists. So we enlist your help, and and this happened on various fronts, in in a pretty fascinating way. 
Um, and yes, you know, what was there good from it? There, there was because there were there were those that were uh, frauds, and Absolutely. and they were exposed. Um, but then, of course, what happened is for ones that they could not expose, it became a smear campaign. It did, and now just as a as a as a very quick just insertion, uh, I don't think that we can you know, touch on the sort of this transcendent movement without briefly talking about Edgar Casey. That's very fair. I mean, that's, that's very fair. Um, although, you know, technic, technically it's not necessarily part of the spiritual, that the same movement, but certainly no. it comes out of that tradition. Um, and again, um, what 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 is analogous is that his methods are much more like the later mediums who quote were uh, conduits and um, now where those mediums tended to be conduits for whoever their guests wanted to um, hear from whether it was a family member or ironically in America, it became very common for famous founding fathers to show up at seances, George Washington, uh, John Quincy Adams, and so on and so forth, um, which, which is a little odd, but I think they're the, your favorite celebrity. <laughs> and that still happens in the paranormal field. That's for, <laughs> for the those that are familiar, there are those that claim to contact any celebrity that's died in the last 24 hours. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that. And it, it is really, again, we're dealing with, we're dealing with, uh, with human emotion, we're dealing with physical, we're dealing with uh, the the concern of fame and profit it is such a constantly moving target and uh, quick uh, I do have to do a, a momentary shout out um, the book an American prophet by Sidney D Kirkpatrick uh, is a, a biography of Edgar Casey I recently purchased the book from always buying books in Joplin, Missouri. There you go. And largely on a whim, uh, just because it looked interesting. It was on the table at one of our events, thanks to, uh, to Bob bringing a number of titles. And I'm about a third of the way through the book. It is excellent. And it makes note that, first of all, a number of people attempted to debunk Edgar Casey. Unsuccessfully. And there is a note that there was discussion between uh, Casey and Houdini. Mm-hmm. And Houdini simply does not ever mention him on, on his side in terms of, of public um, debunking. Well, and in Casey, you know, it 
his, his, I guess you, I guess you would say method, uh, not necessarily a method that was orchestrated by him or, or you know, intended, is slightly different than a lot of these other mediums. Um, yeah. He would just lay down. Yeah, he he was known as a sleeping prophet. He would, often would just lay down and, and go into almost a trance and just start talking. Um, and um, so I, I think there 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 was enough difference that made it harder for Houdini to try to uh, just say he was being fraudulent. I agree, and you know, I, I like to I like to imagine that that Houdini uh witnessed several of of, uh, of edgar casey's trance readings and realized this was not something that he or his campaign were willing to touch and uh quietly backed off and went on their way at at the same time as you've noted with the the the, the con aspect of this mm -hmm. <clears throat> is that once you get into the questions of contacting the dead Mm -hmm. uh, of connecting with those in the afterlife uh, in whatever process that is you are dealing with individuals who are grieving um, mm -hmm. you're dealing with individuals who are in a in, undergoing in many cases uh, a great deal of personal and emotional trauma mm -hmm. and it does make them uh, very uh, susceptible in many cases to fraud and mm -hmm. that it, it's very understandable that individuals in those cases would be very upset with this uh, commercialization of the movement. Oh, and, and, and I agree. And I think another thing that um, intentional or not that I think kind of muddied the waters was this uh, tendency as many in the movement became more concerned with sort of very as not not just are we speaking with the dead uh in phenomena but very very esoteric uh aspects of how things in the universe work etc i think that lent itself to um at least in america what mentioned earlier this idea of we don't have a, you know, a family member coming through. We have George Washington or, or, you know, someone like that coming through. Um, and they would often make statements about current events and, um, and often come through very differently from the perceived notion of these figures. And I think, I think that was catharsis for the all of the tensions that were going on leading up to and through the Civil War. Uh, but by the same token, um, whereas they were coming out as far as as a sense of patriotism and unity um, or familiarity. Um, that it was serving that purpose, but it gave fuel to the idea that, you know, that this is all bunk. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> sitting down to a meeting that Thomas Paine and uh, Shakespeare both send their regards. Exactly. A little, uh, you know, ranging from unsettling to the, the questions of uh, just how much, uh, how much, how much did the American public want to be duped? I found that a very interesting aspect of, uh, uh, you know, toward the end of, uh, of Houdini's campaigns, which became political in terms of uh, attempted legislation to outlaw fortune telling, essentially outlaw spiritualism. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Houdini finding himself deeply frustrated with this idea that uh, Americans valued their uh, their freedom to be lied to. Yes, yes. Um, willful ignorance. Mm -hmm. Which uh, is not terribly difficult from different from today, but also not terribly <laughs> different from uh, the, the, the questions of humanity from 200 or 400 or 800 years ago. And, and, I, and I will throw in there another connection with the, with the Ozarks when you, you mentioned the, the effort of trying to legislate um, the movement out of existence. Um, actually, in Arkansas, there was... Um, success in that there were there were a number of um locations in arkansas particularly not so much in missouri but in arkansas that outlawed fortune telling um and and then um as you said because people people really wanted it when they figured out that really wasn't going to work what they then would do is say okay but you got to pay. You got to pay a fee, and they would be extraordinarily high. Sometimes, even in say the 1920s, they'd be like, you know, twelve, fifteen hundred dollars a year, which was, you know. But they kept, you know, th there were those that stayed in business, and so um, I, I'm not sure why Missouri didn't go through that, but. But uh, I, I found a number of situations in Arkansas that did. So they they uh, they kind of listened to Houdini, I think. And um, but you know, again, as things happen, that went wayside. Just go to Eureka Springs, and you'll see. I know, I know. And <clears throat> the the passage of time does have an interesting impact. A question that has been running in the back of my mind as, we, as we've been talking so much of this has arisen out of what we would think of as a very very traditionalist or uh ideas that have been grappled with since antiquity suddenly mm -hmm. butting up heads with modernity and industrialization yes and one of the things that i'm i'm contemplating in terms of predominantly England and uh, in the Northeastern United States at the same time, uh, mm -hmm. during the, particularly the Victorian era, as well as shortly before, this uh, Victorian, now we think of as spooky, a little Halloween-esque, um, Gothic morbidity obsession with 
death and death ritual, which was um, a big part of fashion even with mm -hmm. the Victorian era. But the, the idea that modernism had stripped away the traditional, um, uh, I want to say trappings, but more than just trappings, the, the traditional processes in which individuals coped as, as communities with mm -hmm. death. <clears throat> and as you strip that away, you suddenly have these terribly modern, almost secular uh, people, uh, you know, in, in large numbers saying, how do I deal with my grief? Right. Uh, and in the interestingly, <clears throat> something that we we overlook is that this this huge rise in funereal custom with Victorian with the Victorian era of particularly England and the northeastern United States uh, was big business. It was. I mean, uh, everything from all of the decor, the morning dresses, everything. I mean, it, it, it was, it was, um, it basically was the greeting card business of the 18, late 1800s. I hate to say that, but it's, you know, uh, kind of true. It was, it's, it, it was an industry um, specifically geared toward grief or the processing or the, 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 the establishment and the, um, the communication of grief as mm -hmm. a the culture, and of course us in our in our era now look at this time um, as a through a nostalgic lens rather than through a say a um, societal structure lens or from a corporate or mm -hmm. uh, or capitalistic lens, but. Right. It is, it is this structure that I, I, I would potentially conjecture, and I'm coming back to spiritualism in a moment, um, would conjecture was a, an attempted replacement or a commercial replacement for um, what had been uh, time-honored ways to manage loss. I, I do think that is that is true, and of course, in America, then of course, Civil War was, you know, sort of the zeitgeist of that. Um, and it, another aspect of that is because it became very, you know, rigid. You know, this this whole industry of of grieving, uh, down to you, you know, a widow would wear full mourning dress for so long and then it, it scaled down and it was again a way of making society rigid people in their place you stay it you stay in your lane do what you're supposed to do um which again does not lend lend itself to catharsis um no and i think understandably these people who are are kind of forced to to deal with this in this new structure that you know is separate from received tradition, they sought 
that release and it came from the spiritualists but at the same time it threatened the existing social structure and also threatened this new corporate almost corporate in the sense of uh commercialized structure for for this process and so um once again, the spiritualists are standing in the crosshairs between these groups that you are a threat to us. Yes, and and I would very much agree with that. And I also, just in terms of mm, a an interesting counter to the zeitgeist, something that seems to be consistent while the many of the practitioners of the spiritualist movement were from lower or middle class, that many of the individuals who were the, uh, uh, the recipients, those interested oftentimes, beginning with Napoleon III, were, were definitely from the aristocratic class uh, or certainly individuals of uh, a great deal of means, comparatively mm -hmm. speaking, where we're not dealing with the poor people uh who were who were grappling with these questions and you compare that to for example uh your rural scotch irish uh here in the hills <clears throat> who brought with them thousand miles uh their own contextualization of death their their own granny women their mm -hmm. own essentially spiritualist mediums in the form of uh of granny women predominantly but not limited to uh the tradition of uh, of those with both men and women with second sight the mm -hmm. ability to see into the other world uh on a on a regular basis and it, it brings up an interesting question to me that in in many cases the the individuals who have uh, the in 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 this 19th century milieu, the individuals who had the the most authority, uh, the most wealth, uh, the most education, mm -hmm. were the ones who were desperately scrabbling at each other, uh, both for and against in this fight when many of the people who quite honestly were our forebearers and those like them mm -hmm. uh, were busy making a living understanding a cosmology that largely contextualized the world and the other world simultaneously without all of these neurotic uh, arguments uh, amongst themselves which i find really fascinating I agree with you. And, and another example of that, um, as you were saying that came to mind is, um, in, in particular, Mary Laveau. Yes. Voodoo. So <laughs> yeah. That same situation, really. And, um, and her, her uh, clients typically were the, the rich and powerful. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and she served the same role as, you know, uh, the Scotch and the Irish um, granny women in a very real way. And it's, 
but then at the same time, both of the, you know, her, you know, her, she and, and other uh, voodoo uh, priests and priestesses, as well as, um, you know, Celtic um, practitioners, um, were really serving a very similar per, uh, function as spiritualist mediums. Um, and it's, isn't it I, ironic now how Mary Laveau is elevated now? <laughs> yes. And the spiritualist mediums are assumed to all have been frauds. And um, in a very real sense, there was not a whole lot of difference. Not really. And I do find that fascinating. And I like the comparison. I really do. And there is something you said, you know, that so much of the, the questions about this were really unsettling to societal structure because it involved um, the threat of people getting out of their lane. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the worst case scenario in this was if you got out of your lane too much, you might get committed to an asylum. Yes, and of course that that does bring up um, the, the story of of Mrs. Weldon in, in London, who basically turned it on its head. I think she's my new hero. <laughs> I, I do too. Eat your heart out, Oscar Wilde. Uh, <laughs> Um, that, 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 I think, you know, those, those men rude the day they decided that they were going to go after her. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, it, it is interesting. So this is, uh, the, the account in particular, uh, written by Judith R. Walkowitz. Um, Science in the Seance, Transgression of Gender and Genre in Late Victorian London. I'll let you uh, elucidate the, uh, the, the particulars of this case. Well, um, Miss, Mrs. Weldon was unconventional for the time, which ultimately was her, 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 her crime, <laughs> according to her post. Um, and um, she was not content to play the role of a dutiful, you know, wife in the sense that she was expected to, particularly when her husband wasn't exactly <laughs> the, uh, the best husband either. Um, and so she tended to um, be a little eccentric. Um, I, I think you know the fact. One, she gave up. She gave up a, a singing career um, and was extremely bored. She ended up t um, basically running um, a children's home with some unconventional ideas of parenting for the time, uh, but seems to have been fairly successful at it. And then, because she expressed. Um, affinity for spiritualism. It was convenient for her husband, who by this time wanted to be rid of her, um, to use it as a means of getting her out of the way. So basically at the time, um, you could have someone committed with 
the you know basically recommendation of two doctors and there wasn't a lot of strict rules on how they went about getting going about ascertaining their opinions and so he ended up working with and fellow's name escapes me I don't have that note in front of me um who ran an asylum who basically was a, a bit of a, a comment um for those in the in the Ozarks paranormal field um he and Norman Baker probably are not that far apart. Um, probably, probably not. <laughs> so um, basically, they 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 ambush the woman at home. He brings doctors and they speak with her for a few minutes, and then, then they, you know, basically they they write opinions that you know she should be committed. And uh, of course, he's doing it for money because the husband's going to pay for her stay. And um, but she she figures out what's going on, is able to basically elude them, um, and basically plead ends up in court pleading her case. And um, the officials deciding that you know she was not crazy. And then um, that woman scorn decided she was going to get even and basically sued them all repeatedly. <laughs> and successfully. <laughs> and successfully representing herself. <laughs> well, I, I do want it to be noted uh, that uh, Georgino Trehearn Weldon was Celtic in ancestry, yeah. and yeah, uh, <laughs> and in this particular case, she was um, Celtic Welsh, and her dabbling with occult spiritualism was the catalyst or excuse for her attempted uh, asylum committing. Yes. Um, and ironically, in the end, she ended up becoming a celebrity, um, doing various stage shows, writing books, etc., um, and uh, sort of really delighting in tormenting her tormentors. Um, so, <laughs> you know, hats off to her. It is, and. <clears throat> It, it speaks to several things. One, the uh, mm, potential savviness and ebullience of uh, those of Celtic descent, which I'm never not fond of considering. It, it also puts an interesting spin on the, the controversy and the question of spiritualism, because we, we see a situation where essentially with the uh, the aristocratic and medical class of the time, the dalliance with spiritualism under the right circumstances, i.e. getting your troublesome spouse out of the way, mm -hmm. was, uh, was, was a good enough excuse uh, to, to do that. A at the same time, uh, Weldon's, uh, Georgina Traherne Weldon's uh, success also really speaks, and, and the fact that 
it, it could be fair to say that she became an urban folk hero uh, that the the less aristocratic classes found her heroic and yes. and the and the the newspapers of the day understanding who was buying uh, the newspapers and mass certainly were were uh, happy to keep printing stories about Weldon because they would sell papers to mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the not wealthy classes and, and by the same token, I think in, in a, you know, sort of the unintended consequence of this, not necessarily what she intended uh, through her efforts, um, is that it started to take a, a bit of the stigma away mm -hmm. for having unpopular or eccentric um, ideas, uh, beliefs, um, at least to the extent of it wasn't going to get you sent to the funny farm. Right. <clears throat> and that is, a, is an aspect that I, I think we today really struggle with in, in really wrapping our heads around the, the idea that, that simply having eccentric or esoteric opinions could have dire consequences in a more restrictive social construct. Yes, I mean, you know, it, it, isn't it amusing where today people seem to um, become very distraught over, you know, these kind of issues being flaunted on social media and someone saying boo to them on social media. Um, and, and, and acts as if it's the end of the world, but yet, you know, a little over a hundred years ago, it literally could have been you were going to be in a psychiatric hospital for the rest of your life. Yes, and it, and it would be the end of your world in that yeah. essence. And the, the, the simple, albeit very chilling fact that um, a, a convene, that this was not uncommon, uh, an, a, a way to in a in in an era when divorce was very difficult, if not frowned upon, uh, not simply frowned upon, um, that the way that a husband could get rid of a wife that they didn't want anymore was to manage to get them committed as crazy. Exactly. But it's also sort of that interesting spin of the, the quote, science establishment um, mm -hmm. turning on the spiritualists once again, whereas in the beginning, they were the champions of spiritualism. I agree. And in something that we see, again, we see the, the situation where the, uh, the, the social strata of those with uh, the most education mm -hmm. arriving at really interesting and oftentimes uh, deeply restrictive, uh, deeply authoritarian uh, positions, and then upholding those positions with intense zeal, you could even argue religious levels of zeal. And uh, you could, in some cases, argue uh, frightening levels of neuroticism. And 
at the time, they would have been arguing that they were doing this not only for science, uh, but for the good of humanity. They were, they were, they were helping maintain the proper structure. Very true, and and, and sadly, um, one reason that Mrs. Walden was able to do what she did, aside from her own innate skills. Um, was that um, she did have the funds to pursue her tormentors and uh, in in litigation, whereas if she had been, you know, a poor girl in you know Whitechapel or someplace in London, she wouldn't have been able to fight it. Um, uh, but as a consequence you know, her actions ended up helping people in those situations as well. Um, right. So in part, they finally picked on a woman who was creative, resourceful, smart enough, and with enough funds to give it back to them. Yes. In many cases, the most uh, deliciously ironic ways that you could imagine. Yes. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Um, and Georgina Rehern Weldon is, uh, I think, Dark Ozark's newest hero. Yes, uh, very delightful. Um, you know, another issue that that came up was, um, and it, it's interesting because it still comes up in in the paranormal field. Uh, the question often comes up, but during this time period the idea of how, because as spiritualism and particularly the seances and the mediums got more flamboyant um, and lent themselves to accusations of fraud, you know, the, there would be times that supposedly, you know, apparitions would appear and that kind of thing. And so in those seances, as well as in literature of the time, uh, there was a very, there was much a fixation on the wardrobe of the ghost yes <laughs> that still informs us today um because how often do you hear the statement of why you know why is a ghost always in, in in a you know a victorian dress or this or that you know and um and actually during that time period they they were expected to you know to to look a certain way Yes. And, and clothes became, actually clothes became a symbol of the ghost itself. It is, the, 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 the particular reference material of spectral matter, the afterlife of clothes in the 19th century ghost story by Aviva Breffel is a, a fascinating, albeit tedious and pedantic read. Um, yeah, that, was, that is. <laughs> that was my first takeaway from uh, research this afternoon. <laughs> um, and yet, as I was going over it, thinking about how much this concept not only informs the paranormal field, but just informs our aspects and ideas of ghosts, of supernatural occurrences, of the afterlife, of the dead. It is absolutely fascinating because, first of all, the the, uh, the 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 phenomena 
uh, for, for everyone who has genuinely experienced seeing spirits or spectral manifestations, um, they don't usually show up naked. That's true. Um, I, you know, I, I've encountered a, f- a handful of apparitions over time and thankfully they were all dressed. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it, um, that might be the one time I might actually scream. <laughs> it, it, uh, probably for worse rather than better, it gives me a new life goal. Um, <laughs> I, I know where this is going, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm now officially threatening to come back as a naked ghost. So because of course I am. Um of course. yes. Uh I, I ironically I think that of, of all places for pop- popular culture to answer this question, one of the reasons that I, I interestingly enough found Breffel's article so pedantic is that the the answer in the most simplistic form was already given to us in the matrix the 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 physical manifestation of the person within the matrix is mm-hmm. however they see themselves yes yes our you know our, our basically our you know our, our sense of self um which is often used to explain why you know well why why did you know, why did this ghost show up looking like, you know, he did when he was 30, but he died when he was 80? That's mm-hmm. how he saw himself. Yes. And, and, and that, that mm, sort of, again, we're using the term a lot, but the, the metaphysical manifestation of our being tends to be associated with how we perceive ourselves within this plane. That's true. Now, now I'm frightened to investigate a haunted nudist colony. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away from the beach. Um, <laughs> so and, and, don't go to the Riviera. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just put it away, ghosts. Just put it away. That's um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it also, uh, because the, some of the questions that are brought up in the um, articles that are mentioned within this article, mm-hmm. you know, are, are these tongue-in-cheek, like, where, where do the ghosts get their clothes? Apparently, they have ghost clothing factories um, making their clothes for them, that sort of thing. That's very, you know, a, 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 mm, etheric um uh, you know, textile factory full of ghosts making things and, uh, you know, perhaps a ghost mercantile. So the ghosts go down to the ghost store and uh, buy their ghost boots. I don't think I ever why, thought why, of why do I see it? Why do I see a movie version of this? That... <laughs> I, I never With thought the... I would. <laughs> of a title character's name you say three times. Yeah, I never thought that I was going to use the term ghost boots. Um, and yet here we are. But <laughs> it, it also, you know, thinking about how this 
these earlier conjectures um, informed popular culture. You think about, you know, I grew up with um, with the, the Whitman comic books of Casper the Friendly Ghost. Mm -hmm. And, you know, pre-films uh, with backstories, I, I liked Momentary Rant. I liked short, simple, simply existent stories. We didn't need, we don't need a backstory. Just speaking for myself, I don't need a backstory for Casper the Friendly Ghost. I don't need a backstory for The Grinch. I don't need a two-hour feature film to explain a 22-minute cartoon. Um, <clears throat> okay, my rant is done. And Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer makes no sense whatsoever, but it is a delightful song. Okay, uh, with that... Here's the answer is that they're, they're really just fan fiction. Yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> okay. That helps. <laughs> Glad I can help. Fan fiction, but fan fiction. <laughs> uh, <laughs> unless it involves Boris Karloff, it is not canon. I staked my claims on that. So, okay. uh, but w within that, the the it really reminded me these questions really reminded me of uh, of the casper comic books from the mm -hmm. say like 1950s on because casper the friendly ghost and the ghostly trio were just sort of living their lives going about doing their daily tasks there was no real question of the afterlife they were just doing their thing and uh, mm -hmm. what does that so, sound familiar doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. And and then the aspect of going about their lives doing their thing, there was, you know, normal daily comes and goings and stuff um, that that would be hinted at or implied or inferred within the 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 process of the story. And so, you know, they need a house and they have if you look at the house it has like a dining room table and a kitchen and so on and so forth so it really made me think about that as well as some other uh particularly like for me childhood um comics coloring books storybooks uh you know what do ghosts do in their time off they go to the ghost beach that sort of thing and it really is, to me, very much informed by these earlier conjectures of what do ghosts wear? How do ghosts act? Those types of things. That's true. And and uh, I had never really thought about that um, before, but um, there is a reason that you had the progression. Now, and I, and, and we're still, even if it's, unconscious affected by that because how often we get people who assume because they just hear oh ghosts are always you know dressed like you know they're from 100 years ago or 200 years ago um, um ironically we we don't go into ghosts or in sheets anymore which that was the motif for a long time uh mm -hmm. so we've gone beyond that but applying it to current uh, paranormal 
issues, people will still say, you know, oh, that you never see a, you know, a ghost that, you know, looks like they're from 2000 or whatever. But that's not the case either. Um, no. you, know, I've, you know, I've had a number of uh, investigations that involved sightings of apparitions that, you know, appeared to be from fairly recent times. Um, one of the more notable ones of it was a you know young man in, in a 1980s uh, jogging suit um, walked up the sidewalk to the house that, that we were investigating, and um, three of us were standing on the porch, and he literally carved walked up or pulled up down the block. Driver got out and walked across the street to a house, and the. This person seemed to get out of the driver's side door or the passenger's side. No one, we weren't paying attention to him really. So, and then walks up to the sidewalk and stands in front of the house and literally says, and, I, and I'm, we're just going, wow, you know, he looks like he's from 1985 with the windsuit and asks, you know, does Mr. So-and-so still live here? And he was referring to the father of the owner of the house. And one of the other investigators says, no, I'm sorry, he's passed away. His daughter owns the house. And, and the young man stands there and says, he was always really nice. And he just turns on the sidewalk and walks uh, down in front of the second house down. And then suddenly just kind of disappears. And we just kind of look at each other, go inside and talk to the owner. And she figures out and goes and gets her yearbook. And it's a kid who died in a car wreck while they were in high school. And he lived in the house two doors down and he had always mowed their grass. And she said, yeah, he dressed like that all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which goes back to, as you say, how, how he saw himself. And just as with that, experience to me and i found the article interesting mm -hmm. because it bring up all of these but it's asking all the wrong questions yeah it because it's it's attempting to explain phenomena within a metaphysical realm using very mundane or non-esoteric realities to do so. True. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't understand. I, I, I do understand why some maybe some, you know, particularly while the whirl of spiritualism was going on, that perhaps some of these questions did come up to people. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps on a weird... Friday night or something, but yeah. You know, but, but yeah, I think it was a, a little more um, obsessed over in the article than need be. <laughs> and you know, and I don't, I don't blame them. They had their their reasons for doing so. I, I just, I think it's interesting because something that once you begin to experience this type of phenomena. You have to understand that this kind of phenomena is touching into a plane 
uh, a plane of existence that doesn't function by the rules of physics that we're asking it to. Exactly. Uh, that doesn't mean that it doesn't function by its own physics. That's true. We just don't necessarily understand what that, those rules are. But then on the other hand, we haven't figured out all the physics in the, in the physical world either. So, Right. So I think it's, mm, is, is, you know, it reminds me a little bit, there was a, uh, uh, a consortium of industrialists and scientists that uh, the petition, petitioned uh, the U.S. Patent Office to close mm -hmm. around 1839 under the argument that considering the explosion of technology in the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, that everything that could have been invented had already been invented and there was really no use in keeping the Patent Office open any longer. Yes, and that was before you know, planes and computers and everything else. So, and, and, and presumably this consortium was made up of individuals who were well-educated. Yes, yes, that's, I don't recall, I, I've read about that in, in the past. I don't recall who all was involved, but uh, they, they were not uh, idle thinkers, no. <laughs> Which, there was a, an interesting quote in the, the um, Harry Houdini article because it really it spoke of the fact that uh, uh, Houdini essentially, and I'll paraphrase, but he essentially said that um, individuals who were highly educated but only along certain lines could be very easily duped. And, and I, I think that that can definitely happen. And sometimes because of their own egos, uh, presuming that they have a good beat on everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Although, you know, I, I do have to say, isn't it ironic that Houdini spent all his time fighting and, you know, seeking to um, expose frauds in the spiritualist movement he dies and his wife starts conducting seances to to reach him although although they did have an agreement that you know if he died that he would try to 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 reach her um and then ironically that it still goes on trying you know and the fact that he died on halloween yes yes um you know some something in the ether going ah let, let, let's play a little joke here i i think so i you know again i it's with many of these situations i can't help but come back to the the, the nagging thought that our quote unquote primitive or in societies of antiquity had a much stronger ability to help individuals grow into not only maturity, but into a metaphysical maturity uh, far beyond what the Industrial Revolution or our modern, and I quote unquote modern, i.e. the last 200, 250 years, uh, educational system is managing to accomplish in the modern era. I, I, I agree. And, and, and that goes back eons, you know, before, you know, even before 
organized religion in the West, etc. It's traditions that you know are just are just eons old that um, modernity has sort of um, disrupted or at least thrown up some roadblocks that. But you do have to wonder if over time that uh, somehow, you know, those skills will creep back in. I mean, they serve so well for so long that. Um, I, I think it's possible and, and I find that very hopeful. I do too. Uh, briefly, I do want to just touch on a little bit of these issues as they pertain to current paranormal culture. Um, one would be um, EVP sessions and uh, seances. I, I've heard people say, oh, an EVP session is a seance. It's, you know, um, and, you know, opening, you know, you know, EVP session opens portals, things like that. Um, and I, I do not adhere to that. Um, you know, EVP session is, is really passive. Um, that's, what happens, happens. Yeah, what happens happens is you're not being a conduit. Um, and I, I think that's one thing. That, just in the yeah. sense that it's it's objective observation within the space. Exactly. Um, and you know, um, by virtue of the fact too that you certainly can have EVPs even if you are not thinking that you're having EVP uh, EVP session. So. Uh, you could be sitting having breakfast and 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 there'd be EVPs. You just may not be aware of them unless you record them. Um, and I think, you know, that again goes to sort of that, that uh, smear campaign against the spiritualists that, quote, talking with the dead equals something evil, something unnatural, etc. cetera. Um, whereas you know, in real time with that, the, the, the things that they use to um, slander the spiritualists in seances were more the invisible causation issues, you know, automatic writing, what's causing these things to happen, where the medium acted as a conduit, not an observer. Uh, mm -hmm. where the medium is the active participant. Um, and that generally does not happen with right. paranormal investigations. Mm -hmm. It's not limited to a number. I mean, we've been asked a number of times if we have a medium. Well, and I think you can have a medium, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're conducting a seance either. You know, um, the, the, the medium right. is not necessarily a conduit um where you know a spirit is speaking through them or writing through them etc and mm -hmm. i think that is uh one of the differentiations and i think that's also again those behaviors were something that really um was unsettling to the structure of society at that time because uh suddenly people who shouldn't have power young women that didn't have money um had a sense of power that their their um more educated richer peers did not and yeah. um but and and, I th and that was irrespective of whether or not you know 
quote, it was some, you know, dealing with something evil. Um, so, you know, I think definitely for people, paranormal investigations using EVP work does not equal a seance, uh, typically. Uh, another thing, of course, that comes up a lot is, of course, Ouija boards. And ironically, we, the Ouija board uh, came out of this time period uh, shortly after the Civil War, um, um, which um, was a little different than, you know, the, um, the table work, uh, but very close. Um, and ironically, since you mentioned the patent office, um, the inventor uh, got a patent on it and was able to secure the patent because convinced the um, patent officials of um, repeated um, corroborative uh, experiments with the Ouija board. He, you know, uh, it kind of goes back to, to home and patient's worth. Um, they couldn't debunk him. Right. And so they issued a patent. And, you know, I think even the, the, the name uh, of the Ouija board <clears throat> is, is actually a portmanteau, meaning mm -hmm. yes, yes, in French and German. Yes, that's and, correct. And it, and it <clears throat> to me, really speaks uh, heavily to that continental European era and it is you know again the second empire french mm -hmm. uh, uh space in, in terms of this particular sort of mm, milieu of culture um creating something that that ultimately has become known worldwide exactly and you know and, and one thing that we should say too that through all of this in, in north america and europe was that you know you, you had you had your skeptics that nothing was happening you had those that in the spiritualist movement felt yes this is real um you had those particularly in the religious sector that said yes this is real but it's bad and then you had the largest sector that said oh this is this is just fun entertainment and right. that was really the public perception of most of this it was well well beyond even well beyond the spiritualist movement itself um mm -hmm. and it, it really is interesting that in our postmodern society that we now perceive this particularly the way you board so many people do as something evil etc that that connotation did not really exist for well over a hundred years. Which is a, it's, it's an interesting progression process. We, we typically see, I mean, we're, we're told that the, the human progression is that it begins with uh, superstition and fear of dark forces, um, you know, man in the, uh, you know, in the, in the European caves, 
painting shamanistic images and afraid of the eclipse. Right. And which it, it is fair to argue that the, uh, the, the individuals painting uh, the, the uh, deer men on the Lascaux cave um, were, were probably skilled enough astronomers to predict the eclipse, but that's neither here nor there. Um, just conjecture. And that, uh, again, the idea that, that as human nature evolves with the help of the transfiguring help of technology, uh, thank you, General Electric and Edison, that, and uh, Museum of Natural History in Chicago, that we have the diorama, that we, we, we move into a uh, Gene Roddenberry inspired point of pure science and rationality, uh, a, a point of utopia, um, honestly very boring on the galaxy class starship, but you know, still a gorgeous ship and it's still my favorite because I grew up with it, 1987. But anyway, I digress is that we're just constantly moving out of superstition that the, mm -hmm. the, that uh, human evolution of the mind only goes one way and we're, we're moving from primitivism and superstition to rationale and science. And um, not necessarily. No, no. But I, I do find it interesting in the, in, the, in the current paranormal field that the, the methods that are employed to, to try to be objective, to, to try to use um, some sort of rigorous observation and um, empirical basis uh, actually mirrors early spiritualism more than anything. And that yeah. ultimately the spiritualist movement diverged from the supernatural and paranormal into um, the ideas of you know what causes us to think different things and what causes us to uh, be this way or that way and to give notions that of basically equality of the sexes and the temperance movement and things like that workers rights um, uh, so it, it's kind of interesting that Spiritualism went off on a, on a tangent and the roots of it sort of were reborn in the late 20th century paranormal movement. I think it's fascinating. And the, the biggest takeaway for me is that the impact of spiritualism is everywhere. It really is. And certainly goes beyond the tropes of late night TV movies, you know, <laughs> and even uh, you know my uh, my favorite talking head inside a crystal ball, uh, Madame Leota inside the haunted mansion. Very true, very true, and uh, but certainly some food for thought and perhaps a a, a good point to end on tonight. Um, and we want to remind everyone not to forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkosarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Boots and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. On the next episode, we are going to be discussing African-American folklore and the paranormal. 
Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Substack, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.